I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, But in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read... Uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Ah, freedom. Freedom to grow a crappy beard, because there's no one to care if I'm wearing it or not. That's freedom. That's what I'm doing right now, and it's embarrassing. My beard is so thin on the sides, on my cheeks, that uh, I grow it out, and people think I'm just growing a goatee, because it's all thicker on my lips and my chin. That's embarrassing, because no one wears a goatee anymore, but uh, if they get in real close, they can see I'm trying to grow something on the sides. Freedom uh, to get a new job. My current job is horrible. And I applied for a different position within the same company, and... uh, It sounds like it's going to be a ton of work, and there's uh, a lot to do, and I'll probably have less time for the podcast, but but, uh, the semblance of pride is what I'm looking for in that, uh, in what I do, and the people I work with, so hopefully that'll pay off and be worthwhile, and the freedom to read a public domain work, where I can screw up words and mispronounce things, just take a whole sentence and just murder it, and not stop it and reread it or anything. So you're going to hear, I've already recorded the reading of this story before I did this intro, you're going to hear me screw up a lot, and I do it with pride. With this reading of Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town by Stephen Leacock. Let's learn about the author. Stephen P.H. Butler Leacock. Ooh, I wish I had that many middle names going on. How come no one does that anymore? I'd love that. Uh, he's... Born in December of 1869 and died in March of 1944. He was a Canadian teacher, a political scientist, writer, humorist. Yeah, between the years of 1915 and 1925, he was the best-known English-speaking humorist in the world. He is known for his light humor, along with criticisms of people's follies. So if anyone was going to write for the show Friends back at the turn of the last century, it would have been Stephen Leacock. So let's dive in to Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town. One, the holstery of Mr. Smith. I don't know whether you know Mariposa. If not, there's no consequence for it. If you know Canada at all, uh, you're probably well acquainted with a dozen towns just like it. There it lies in the sunlight, sloping out from the little lake that spreads out at the foot of the hillside on which the town is built. There's a wharf beside the lake and lying alongside it a steamer which is tied to the wharf. Two ropes about the same size they use on the Lusitania, huh? The steamer goes nowhere in particular, for the lake is landlocked. Eh, there's no navigation for the Mariposa Bell except to, quote, run trips. On the 1st of July and the Queen's birthday, they take excursions of the Knights of Pythias. Pythias. 
whatever, and the Sons of Temperance, to and from the local option townships. In point of geography, the lake is uh, called Lake Wissanati, and the river running out of it, the Asawippi. Just as Main Street of Mariposa is called the Missinaba Street and the county, Missinaba County. But these names do not really matter. Nobody uses them. People simply speak of the lake, the river, and the Main Street, much in the same way as they always call the Continental Hotel uh, Pete Robinson's and the Pharmaceutical Hall uh, Elliott's Drugstore. But I suppose it's just the same in everyone else's town as in mine, so I need lay no stress on it. The town, I say, has one broad street that runs up from the lake, commonly called the Main Street. There's no doubt about its width. When Mariposa was laid out, there was none of the short-sightedness which is seen in the cramped dimensions of Wall Street and Piccadilly. Uh, Missinaba Street was so wide uh, that if you were to roll Jeff Thorpe's barbershop over on his face, it wouldn't reach halfway across. Up and down the Main Street are telegraph poles of cedar of colossal thickness, standing at a variety of angles and carrying rather more wires than are commonly seen at a transatlantic cable station. On the main street itself, there are a number of buildings of extraordinary importance, Smith's Hotel and the Continental, and the Mariposa House and the two banks of commercial exchange. Say nothing of McCarthy's Block, erected in 1878, and Glover's Hardware Store with the Odd Fellows Hall above it. Then on the, quote, Cross Street, that intersects Missinaba Street at the main corner. There's a post office and fire hall and a young men's Christian association and office of Mariposa News Packet. In fact, to the eye of discernment, a perfect jostle of public institutions, comparable only to Threadneedle Street or Lower Broadway. On all the side streets, there are maple trees and broad sidewalks, trim gardens with upright colonies, and houses uh, with verdanas. Verdanas? Verandas, <laughs> which are here and there being replaced by residences uh, with piazzas. Mm. And to the careless eye on the scene, on the main street of a summer afternoon, is one of deep and unbroken peace. The empty street eh, sleeps in the sunshine. There's a horse and buggy tied to the hitching post in front of Glover's hardware store. There is, usually and commonly, the early figure of Mr. Smith, proprietor of Smith's Hotel, standing. Ah, in his checkered waistcoat, on the steps of his holstery, and perhaps uh, further up the street, uh, Laura McCartney, lawyer McCartney, hmm, going for his afternoon mail, or the Reverend Mr. Drone, the rural dean of the Church of England Church, uh, going home to get his fishing rod after a mother's auxiliary, auxiliary meeting. I can't read. Something's going on with my mouth today. But in this quiet, as uh, mere appearance... In reality, and to those who know it, the place is a perfect hive of activity. Why, at Netley's Butcher Shop, established in 1882, there are no less than four men uh, working on the sausage machines in the basement. At the Newspacket office, there is many more job printing. There's a long-distance telephone with uh, four distracting girls on high stools, wearing steel caps and talking incessantly. In the offices in McCartney's block are dentists, uh, lawyers with the coats off, ready to work at any moment. And from the big planning factory, planing factory, I guess is how you would say that, down beside the lake where the railroad siding is, you may hear all through the hours of the summer afternoon the long-drawn music of the running saw. 
Busy? Ah, well, I should think so, exclamation point. Ask any of the inhabitants of Mariposa. Isn't a busy, hustling, thriving town? Ask Mullins, the manager of the exchange bank, who comes hustling over to his office from the Mariposa house every day at uh, uh, 10.30, and has scarcely time all morning to go out and take a drink with the manager of the commercial. Or ask, uh, well... For the matter of that, ask any of them if they ever knew a more rushing, go-ahead town than Mariposa. Of course, if you come to the place, uh, fresh from New York, you are deceived. Your standard vision is uh, all astray. You do not think the place is quiet. You do imagine that Mr. Smith is asleep, merely because he closes his eyes as he stands. <laughs> but live in Mariposa for six months or a year, and you'll begin to understand it better. The buildings... Get higher and higher. The Mariposa house grows more and more luxurious. McCarthy's block towers uh, to the sky. And the buses roar and hum to the station. The trains shriek. Uh, the traffic multiplies. The people move faster and faster. A dense crowd swirls to and fro in the post office and the five and ten cent store. Oh, and the amusements. Well now, exclamation point. Lacrosse. I don't know. Baseball. <laughs> excursions. Dances. The fireman's ball every winter. And the Catholic picnic every summer. Ooh, and music. The town band in the park every Wednesday evening. And the Oddfellows Brass Band on the street every Friday. Mariposa Quartet. Ah, the Salvation Army. Why... After a few months' residence, you begin to realize that the place is a mere mad round of gaiety. A point of population? Mm, if one must come down to figures, the Canadian census puts the numbers every time at something around 5,000. Eh, but it is generally understood in Mariposa that the census is largely the outcome of malicious jealousy. It is usual that after the census, the editor of the Mariposa news packet uh, makes a careful re-estimate based on the data of relative non-payment of subscriptions and brings the population up to 6,000. After that, the Mariposa Times-Herald makes an estimate that runs the figures up to 6,500. And then Mr. Gingham, uh, the undertaker, who collects the vital statistics for the provincial government, makes an estimate from the number of what he calls uh, the, quote, demised, unquote, as compared with the less interesting persons who are uh, still alive, and brings the population to 7,000. After that, uh, somebody else works it out that's 7,500. Then the man behind the bar of the Mariposa house offers to bet the whole room that there are 9,000 people in Mariposa. That settles it. And the population is well on the way to 10,000. Then down swoops the federal census taker on his next round, and the town has begun all over again. Still, it is a thriving town, and there is no doubt of it. Even the transcontinental railways, as any townsman will tell you, run through Mariposa. It is true that the trains mostly go through it at night and don't stop, but in the wakeful silence of the summer night, you may hear the long whistle of the train. Uh, as of the west, as it tears through Mariposa, rattling over switches and past the semaphores, and ending in a long, sullen roar as it takes the trestle bridge over the Ossawippi. Or better still, on a winter evening. At about 8 o'clock, you'll see the long row of the Pullmans and diners of the Night Express going north to the mining country. The windows flashing with brilliant light, and within them a vista of cut glass and snow-white table linen. Ah, smiling Negroes, oh <laughs> and the millionaires with napkins at their chins, whirling past in the driving snowstorm. That one snuck up on me. 
I can tell you the people of Mariposa are proud of the trains, even if they don't stop! Exclamation point. The joy of being on the main line lifts the Mariposa people above the level of their neighbors in such places as Tecumseh and Nicholas Corners into the cosmopolitan atmosphere as uh, through traffic and larger left. Of course, they have their own train. Mm, to the Mariposa local, made right there in the station yard, and running south to the city, a hundred miles away. That, of course, is his real train, with a box stove on the end of a passenger car, fed with cordwood upside down, uh, and with 17 flat cars of pine lumber set between the passenger car and the locomotive, uh, so as to give the train its full impact when shunting. <laughs> Outside of Mariposa... Uh, there are farms that begin well, but uh, get thinner and meaner as you go on, and then sooner or later in a bush swamp in the rock of the North Country. And uh, beyond that again is a new background of it all, though far away you are somehow aware of the great pine woods of the Lumber Country, reaching endlessly into the north. Not that the little town is always gay or always bright in the sunshine. There never was such a place for changing its character through the season. Uh, dark enough. And dull it seems a winter night, the wooden sidewalks creaking with the frost, and the lights burning dim behind the shop windows. In olden times, the lights were coal oil lamps. Uh, of course, they are supposed to be electricity, uh, brought from the powerhouse on the lower Ossawippi, 19 miles away. But somehow, uh, though it starts off as electricity from the Ossawippi Rapids, at the time it gets to Mariposa, uh, filters into the little bulbs behind the frosty windows of the shops, it's turned into coal oil again as yellow and bleared as ever. After the winter, eh, the snow melts, and the ice goes out of the lake, and the sun shines high, and the shanty men come down from the lumber woods and lie around drunk on the sidewalk outside of Smith's Hotel. That's springtime. Uh, Mariposa is that a fierce, dangerous lumber town, uh, calculated to terrorize the soul of a newcomer who does not understand that this is also is only an appearance and that presently the rough-looking shantymen will change their clothes and turn back again into farmers. Then the sun shines warmer and the maple trees come out and Lawyer McCartney puts on his tennis trousers, and that's summertime. A little town changes into a sort of summer resort. There are visitors up from the city. Every one of the seven cottages along the lake is full. The Mariposa Bell churns the waters of the Wissanati into foam as she sails out from the wharf. In a cloud of flags, the band playing and the daughters and sisters of the Knights Matthias, Matthias dancing gaily on the deck. That changes, too. Uh, the day's short and the visitors disappear, and the golden rod beside the meadow droops and withers on its stem. The maples blaze in glory and die, and the evening closes dark and chill. And in the gloom of the main corner, Mariposa, the Salvation Army, around a Napatha lamp, lift up the confession of their sins, and that is autumn. Thus the year eh, runs its round, moving and changing in Mariposa, much as it does in other places. If then you feel that you know the town well enough to be admitted into the inner life and the movement of it, walk down this June afternoon, halfway down the main street, or if you like, halfway up from the wharf, and where Mr. Smith is <laughs> standing at the door of his holstery, eh, you will feel as you draw near that it is no ordinary man that you approach. It is not alone the huge bulk of Mr. Smith, 280 pounds, as tested on Netley scales. It is not merely his costume, uh, the checkered waistcoat, 
It was dark blue with a flowered pattern form. So it's the shepherd's plaid trousers. It's gray spats and patent leather boots. A color scheme of no mean order. Nor is it merely Mr. Smith's finely modeled face. The face, no doubt, a notable one. Solemn, inexpressible, unreadable. The face of the heaven-born hotel keeper. Oh, it's more than that. It's the strange dominating personality of the man that somehow holds you captive. I know nothing in history to compare with the position of Mr. Smith among those who drink over his bar, except, uh, though, in a lesser degree, the relation of the Emperor Napoleon uh, to the Imperial Guard. When you meet Mr. Smith first, you think he uh, looks like an overdressed pirate. Then you begin to think of a character. You wonder at his enormous bulk, uh, then utter hopelessness of knowing what Smith is thinking by merely looking at his features gets on your mind and makes the Mona Lisa seem like an open book. And the ordinary human countenance is superficial as a puddle in the sunlight. After you've had a drink in Mr. Smith's bar and has called you by your Christian name, you realize that you are dealing with one of the greatest minds in the hotel business. Take, for instance, the big sign that sticks out into the street above Mr. Smith's head as he stands. Uh, what is on it? <laughs> Joss Smith prop. Nothing more. And yet the thing was a flash of genius. Other men who had had the hotel before Mr. Smith had called it by such uh, feeble names as <laughs> Royal Hotel and the Queens and the Alexandria. Every one of them failed. When Mr. Smith took over the hotel, he simply put up the sign with Joss Smith prop and then stood underneath it in the sunshine as living proof that a man who weighs nearly 300 pounds is the natural king of the hotel business. But on this particular afternoon, in spite of the sunshine and deep peace, there was something as near to profound concern and anxiety as the features of Mr. Smith were ever known to express. The moment was indeed an anxious one. Mr. Smith was awaiting a telegram from his legal advisor, who had that day journeyed to the country town to represent the proprietor's interests, before he assembled licensed commissioners. If you know anything of the hotel business at all, you will understand that as beside the decisions of the licensed commissioners of Missinaba County, the opinions of lords of the Privy Council are mere trifles. The matter in question is very grave. The Mariposa Court had just fined Mr. Smith for the second time for selling liquors after hours, and the commissioners, therefore, were entitled to cancel the license. Mr. Smith knew his fault and acknowledged it. He had broken the law. How he had come to do so, it passed his imagination to recall. A crime always seems impossible in retrospect, but uh, by what sheer madness of the moment uh, could he have shut up the bar on, on the night in question and shut Judge Pepperley, the district judge of Missinaba County outside of it, the more so in so much as the closing up of the bar under the rigid license law of the province was a matter of the proprietor never trusted to any hands but his own. Punctuality, every night at eleven o'clock, Mr. Smith strolled from the desk of his rotunda to the door of the bar. It is it seemed properly full of people, and all was bright and cheerful when he closed it. If not, he kept it open for a few minutes longer till he had enough people inside to warrant closing, but never, never unless he was assured that Pepperley, the judge of the court, and McCartney, the prosecuting attorney, were both safely in the bar. Or the bar parlor. The proprietor ventured to close up. Yet on this fatal night, Pepperley and McCartney had been shut out 
actually left on the street without a drink and compelled to hammer and beat at the street door of the bar to gain admittance. This is the kind of thing uh, not to be tolerated. Either a hotel must be run decently or quit. An information was laid the next day and Mr. Smith convicted in four minutes. His lawyers practically refusing to plead a mere pose of court when the presiding judge was called sober and the force of the public opinion behind it was a terrible engine of re- re- retributive, <laughs> retributive justice. So no wonder uh, that Mr. Smith awaited with anxiety the message of his legal advisor. He looked alternately up at the street and down it again, hauled out his watch from the depths of his embroidered pocket and examined the hour hand and the minute hand and the second hand with frowning scrutiny. Then wearily, as one mindful that the hotel man is ever the servant of the public, he turned back into the hotel. Billy, eh, he said to the desk clerk, eh, if a wire comes, eh, bring it into the bar parlor. The voice of Mr. Smith is of a deep guttural, such as a planken, or Edward, it's spelt weird, oh, Duresk, <laughs> might have obtained. They had had uh, the advantages of the hotel business. And with that, uh, Mr. Smith, as was his custom in off moments, joined his guests in the back room. His appearance to the untrained eye was merely of an extremely stout hotel keeper walking from the rotunda to the back bar. In reality, uh, Mr. Smith was on the eve of one of the most brilliant and daring strokes ever effected in the history of licensed liquor. When I say that it was out of the agitation of this situation that Smith's Ladies and Gents Cafe originated, anybody uh, who knows the Mariposa will understand the magnitude of the moment. Mr. Smith, then, moved slowly from the doorway of the hotel through the, quote, rotunda, or more simply to the front room with the desk and the scar case, and, and so to the bar and thence to the little room or back bar behind it. In this room, as I have said, the brightest minds of Mariposa might commonly be found in the quieter part of the summer afternoon. Today, uh, there was a group of four who looked up at Mr. Smith, entered somewhat uh, sympathetically and evidently aware of the perplexities of the moment. Henry Mullins and George Duff, the two bank managers, were both present. Mullins is rather short, a round, smooth-shaven man of less than 40, wearing one of those round banking suits of pepper and salt with a round banking hat of hard straw and the kind of gold tie pin and heavy chain watch uh, that seals necessary to inspire confidence in matters of foreign exchange. Duff, uh, just as round and short, uh, is equally smoothly shaven, while his seals and straw hat are calculated to prove that the commercial is just as sound a bank as the exchange. From the technical point of view of the banky business, and neither of them have any objection to being at Smith's Hotel or to taking a drink as long as the other was present, this, of course, was one of the cardinal principles of Mariposa Banking. Then there was Mr. Diston, the high school teacher, commonly known as the one who drank, in quotes. None of the other teachers ever entered a hotel unless accompanied by a lady or protected by a child. But as Mr. Diston was known to drink beer on occasions and go in and out of uh, the Mariposa house in Smith Hotel, he was looked upon as a man whose life was a mere wreck. Whenever the school board raised the salaries of the other teachers, 50 or $60 per annum at one lift, it was well understood that public morality wouldn't permit of an increase for Mr. Diston. 
Still more noticeable, perhaps, was the quiet, sallow-looking man dressed in black with black gloves and with a black silk hat heavily capped, crapped, and placed hollow side up on the chair. This was Mr. Golgotha Gingham, oh lord, the undertaker of Mariposa, and his dress was due to the fact that he had just come from what he had called an internment. Mr. Gingham had the true spirit of his profession, and such words as, quote, funeral, or, quote, coffin, or, quote, hearse, never passed his lips. He spoke always of internments or caskets and coaches, using terms that were calculated, rather, to bring out the majesty and sublimity of death than to parade its horrors. To be present at the hotel was in accord with Mr. Gingham's general conception of his business. No man had ever grasped the true principles of undertaking more thoroughly than Mr. Gingham. I have often heard him explain that to associate with the living, uninteresting though they may appear, is the only way to secure the customs of the dead. Quote, Get to know eh, people really well while they're still alive, said Mr. Gingham. Be friends with them, eh, close friends. And then, when they die, you don't need to worry. You'll get the order every time. So naturally, as the monument was one of sympathy, it was Mr. Gingham who spoke first. What do you do, Josh, he said, if the commissioners go against you? Boys, said Mr. Smith, I don't really rightly know... If I have to quit, the next move is to the city, but I don't reckon that I'll have to quit. I've got a, an ID, I-D-E-E, that I think is good every time. Could you run a hotel in the city? asked Mullins. I could, said Mr. Smith. I'll tell you, there's big things doing in the hotel business right now. Big chances if you go into it right. Hotels in the city is branching out. Why? You take the dining room side of it, continued Mr. Smith, looking around at the group. There's thousands in it. The old plan's all gone. Folks won't eat now in an ordinary dining room with a high ceiling of windows. You have to get them down on the ground in a room with no windows and lots of sawdust, round and waiters that can't speak English. Eh. I ain't seen them places last time when I was in the city. They call them rats coolers. And for light meals, they want a calf, a real French calf. And for folks that come in late in another place, they'll call a girl room. They won't shut up at all. If I go to the city, eh, that's the kind of place I mean to run. Eh, what's yours, Gull? It's on the house. And it was just at that moment when Mr. Smith said this that Billy, the desk clerk, entered the room with the telegram in his hand. But stop. It's impossible for you to understand the anxiety with which Mr. Smith and his associates waited the news from the commissioners without the first realizing the astounding progress of Mr. Smith in the three past years and the pinnacle of public eminence to which he had attained. Mr. Smith had come down from the lumber country of the Spanish River, where the divide is toward the Hudson Bay, uh, back north, as they called it in Mariposa. He had been, it was said, a cook in the lumber shanties. To this day, Mr. Smith can fry an egg on both sides with the lightness of touch that is the despair of his own help. After that, he had run a river in Driver's Boarding House. After that, he had taken a food contract for a gang of railroad uh, navvies on the transcontinental. After that, of course, the whole world was open to him. He came down to Mariposa and brought out the, quote, inside of what had been the Royal Hotel. 
Those who are educated understand that by the, quote, inside of a hotel, it has meant everything except the four outer walls of it, the fittings, the furniture, the bar, Billy, the desk clerk, the three dining room girls, and above all, license granted by King Edward, the seventh, and ratified further by King George for the sale of intoxicating liquors. Till then, the royal had been a mere nothing. As Smith's Hotel, it broke into a blaze of effluence. From the first, Mr. Smith, as a proprietor, was a wild, rapturous success. He had all the qualifications. He weighed 280 pounds. He could haul two drunken men out of a bar, each by the scruff of their neck without the faintest anger or excitement. He carried money enough in his trouser pockets mm, to start a bank and spent it on anything, bet it on anything, and gave it away in handfuls. He was never drunk, and as a point of chivalry to his customers, and never quite sober. Anybody was free of the hotel who cared to come in. Anybody who didn't like it could go out. Drinks of all kinds cost five cents or six for a quarter. Meals and beds were practically free. Any person's foolish enough to go to the desk and pay for them, Mr. Smith charged according to the expression on their faces. At first, eh, the loafers and the shantymen settled down on the place in a, in a shower. But that was not the trade that Mr. Smith wanted. He knew how to get rid of them. An army of chairwomen turned into a hotel, scrubbed it from top to bottom, a vacuum cleaner. The first scene of Mariposa hissed and screamed in the corridors. Forty brass beds were imported from the city, not, a, of course, for the guests to sleep in, but to keep them out. A bartender with a starched coat and wicker sleeves was put behind the bar. The loafers were put out of business. The place had become too high-toned for them. To get the high-class trade, Mr. Smith set himself to dress the part. He wore wide coats of flimsy serge, light as gossamer, checkered waistcoats with a pattern for every day of the week, fedora hats, light as autumn leaves. Four-in-hand ties of saffron and myrtle green with a diamond pin the size of a hazelnut. In his fingers, there were as many gems as would grace a native prince of India. Across his waistcoat lay a gold watch chain and huge square links. In his pocket, a gold watch that weighed a pound and a half and, and marked minutes, seconds, and quarter seconds. Just a look at Josh Smith's watch brought at least uh, ten men to the bar every evening. Every morning, Mr. Smith was shaved by Jefferson Thorpe across the way. All that art could do, all that Florida water could affect, was lavished upon his person. Mr. Smith became a local character. Mariposa was at his feet. All the reputable businessmen drank in Mr. Smith's bar, and in the little parlor behind it, you might find at any time a group of the brightest intellects in the town. Not but what there was opposition at first. The clergy, for example, who accepted the Mariposa House and the Continentals as necessary and useful evil, looked askance at the blazing lights and the surging crowd of Mr. Smith's saloon. They preached against him. When the Reverend Dean Drone led off with a sermon on the next, uh, Lord be merciful, even unto the publican Matthew 6, it was generally understood as an invitation to strike Mr. Smith dead. In the same way the sermon at the Presbyterian Church the week after was on the text, Hello, uh, what now doth Abraham in the land of Melchizedek, Shadistic, 
uh, Kings 8 and 9, and it was perfectly plain that that was what was meant. Lo, what was Josh Smith doing in Mariposa? But this opposition had been countered by wide and sagest philanthropy. I think Mr. Smith uh, got the idea that on the night when the steam merry-go-round came to Mariposa, just below the holstery, on an empty lot, it whirled and whistled, steaming forth its tunes on the summer evening while the children crowded around in hundreds. Down the street strolled Mr. Smith, wearing a soft fedora to indicate that it was evening. Eh, what do you charge for a ride, boss, said Mr. Smith. Yeah, two for a nickel, said the man. Yeah, take that, said Mr. Smith, handing out a ten-dollar bill from the roll of money, and ride the little folks free all evening. That night, the merry-go-round whirled madly till after midnight, freighted to capacity with Mariposa children, while up in Smith's hotel, parents, friends, and admirers, as the news spread, were standing four deep along the bar. They sold $40 worth of lager alone that night, and Mr. Smith learned, if he had not already suspected it, that the blessedness of giving. The uses of philanthropy went further. Mr. Smith subscribed to everything, joined everything, and gave to everything. He became the eh, odd fellow, a forester, a knight of Pythus, and a workman. He gave $100 to the Mariposa Hospital and $100 to the Young Men's Christian Association. He subscribed to the ball club, yeah, the lacrosse club, the curling club, anything, in fact, and especially to all those things which needed premises uh, to meet in and grew thirsty in their discussions. As a consequence, the Odd Fellows held their annual banquet at Smith's Hotel and the Oyster Supper of the Knights of Pythias uh, was celebrated in Mr. Smith's dining room. Even more effective, eh, perhaps, are Mr. Smith's secret benefications. The kind of giving done by stealth, of which not a soul in town knew anything. Often, eh, for a week after it was done, it was in this way that Mr. Smith put the new font in Dean Drone's church and handed over a hundred dollars to Judge Pepperley for the unrestrained use of the conservative party. So it came about that, eh, little by little, the antagonism had died down. Smith's Hotel became an accepted institution in Mariposa. Even the temperance people were proud of Mr. Smith as a sort of character who added distinction to the town. There were moments in the early quiet of the morning when Dean Drone would go so far as to step into the rotundra and collect a subscription. As for the Salvation Army, they ran in and out all the time unreproved. On only one point, difficulty still remained. That was the closing of the bar. Mr. Smith could never bring his mind to it. Not as a eh, matter of profit, but as a point of honor. It was too much for him to feel that the Judge Pepperley might be out on the sidewalk thirsty at midnight, that the night's hands of the Times-Herald on Wednesday might be compelled to go home dry. On this point, Mr. Smith's moral code was simplicity itself. Do what is right and take the consequences. So the bar stayed open. Every town, I suppose, has its meaner spirits, and every genial bosom some snake has warmed, or, as Mr. Smith put it to Galagatha Gingham, there are some fellers, even in this town, skunks enough to inform. At first, the Mariposa court quashed all indictments. The presiding judge, with his spectacles on and a pile of books in front of him, threatened the informer with the uh, penitentiary, the whole bar of Mariposa, 
was with Mr. Smith, but by sheer iteration, the information had proved successful. Judge Pepperlay learned that Mr. Smith had subscribed $100 for the Liberal Party and at once fined him for keeping open after hours. That made one conviction. On top of this had come the untoward incident I just mentioned, and that made two. Beyond that was the deluge. This, then, was the exact situation when Billy, the desk clerk, entered the black bar with the telegram in his hand. Eh, here's your wire, sir, he said. Eh, what does it say? said Mr. Smith. He always dealt with written documents with a fine air of detachment. I don't suppose there were ten people in Mariposa who knew that Mr. Smith couldn't read. Billy opened the message and read, Eh, commissioners, give you three months to close down. Eh, let me read it, said Mr. Smith. That's right, three months to close down. There was a dead silence. When the message was read, everyone waited for Mr. Smith to speak. Mr. Gingham instinctively assumed the professional air of hopelessness and melancholy. As it was afterwards recorded, Mr. Smith stood and studied with the tray in his hand for at least four minutes. And then he spoke. Uh, boys, he said, I'll be darned if I close down till I'm ready to close down. I got an ID, I-D-E-E. Uh, you wait, and I'll show you. Beyond that, not another word did Mr. Smith say on the subject. But within 48 hours, the whole town knew that something was doing. The hotel swarmed with carpenters, bricklayers, and painters. There was an architect uh, up from the city with a bundle of blueprints in his hand. There was an engineer uh, taking the street level with a fieldite. And a gang of navies, navies, N-A-V-V-I-E-S. With the shovels digging eh, like fury, as if to dig out the back foundations of the hotel. Ah, now fool them, said Mr. Smith. Half the town was gathered round the hotel, crazy with excitement. But not a word would the proprietor say. Great dray loads of square timber and two by eight eh, pine joists kept arriving from the planning mill. There's a pile of matched spruce sixteen feet high lying by the sidewalk. Then the excavation deepened, and the dirt flew, and the beams went up, and the joists across, and all the day from dawn till dusk the hammers of the carpenters clattered away, working overtime, time and a half. Eh, it don't matter what it costs, said Mr. Smith. Get it done. Rapidly, the structure took form. It extended down the side street, joining the hotel at a right angle. Spacious and graceful it looked as it reared its uprights into the air. Already, eh, you could see the place where the row of windows it was to come, a veritable palace of glass. It must be so wide and commodious eh, were they. Below it, you could see the basement shaping itself with a low ceiling like a vault and a big beams running across, dressed smooth and ready for staining. Already in the street, there were seven crates of red and white awning. And even then, nobody knew what it was. And it was not till the seventeenth day that Mr. Smith, in the privacy of the back bar, broke the silence and explained, Yeah, I'll tell you, boys, he said. It's a calf, uh, like what they have in the city, uh, a ladies and gents calf. And that underneath, uh, what's yours, Mr. Mullins, is a rat's cooler. And when I get her started, I'll hire a French chef to do the cooking. And for the winter, I'll uh, put in a, a girl room, like what they have in the city hotels. And I'd like to see who's going to close her up then. Within uh, two more weeks, the plan was in operation. Not only was the calf built, but the very hotel was transformed. Awnings had 
broken out in red and white cloud upon its face, and every window carried a box of hanging plants. And above in glory floated the Union Jack. Uh, the very stationery was changed. The place was now Smith's Summer Pavilion, and it was advertised in the city as Smith's Tourist Emporium and Smith's Northern Health Resort. Mr. Smith got the editor of the Times-Herald to write up a circular all about ozone and the Mariposa Pine Woods with illustrations of the masconage, uh, Pisces Mariposis of the Lake Wasani. The Saturday after that, eh, circular hit the city in July. There were men with fishing rods and landing nets pouring in on every train, almost too fast to register. And if, in the face of that, a few little drops of whiskey were sold over the bar, eh, who thought of it? Eh, but the calf, that, of course, was the crowning glory of the thing. That and the rat's cooler below, light and cool, with swinging windows open to the air, tables with marble tops, palms, waiters in white coats. It was the standing marvel of Mariposa. Not a soul in town except for Mr. Smith, who knew it by instinct, ever guessed that waiters and palms and marble tables can be rented over the long-distance telephone. Mr. Smith was as good as his word. He got a French chef, yeah, with an aristocratic uh, satirine countenance, and a mustache, uh, an imperial that recalled the late Napoleon III. No one knew where Mr. Smith got him. Some people in town said he was a French marquis. Hmm. Others said yeah, he was a count and explained the difference. No one in Mariposa had ever seen anything like the calf. All down the side of it were grill fires with great pewter dish covers that went up and down on a chain, and... You could walk along the row and uh, actually pick out your own cutlet and then see the French Marquis throw it on the boiling iron. You could watch a buckwheat pancake whirled into existence under your eyes and see fowl's legs uh, deviled, peppered, grilled, and tormented till they lost all semblance of an original Mariposa chicken. Mr. Smith, of course, uh, was in his glory. Uh, what, do you got? what do you got today, Alf? He would say as he strolled over to the Marquis. The name of the chef was, I believe, Alphonse, but Alf was near enough for Mr. Smith. The Marquis would extend to the propriety the menu. Voila, monsieur, la carte de jour. Mr. Smith, by the way, encouraged the use of the French language in the cafe. He viewed it, of course, solely in its relation to the hotel business, and I think uh, regarded it as a recent invention. It's coming all the time in the city, he said, and he ain't expected to understand it. Mr. Smith would take care of the car between his finger and thumb and stare at it. It was all covered with such devices as potage de la mariposa, filet mignon a la propriétaire, <coughs> cotel la smith, and so on. But the greatest thing about the calf were the prices. Therein lay, as everyone saw it at once, the hopelessness, simplicity of Mr. Smith. The prices stood fast at 25 cents a meal. You could come in and eat all they had in the calf for a quarter. No, sir, Mr. Smith said stoutly. I ain't gonna try to raise no prices on the public. Eh, the hotel's always been a quarter and the calf's a quarter. Full? Full of people? Well, I should think so. From the time the calf opened at 11 till it closed at 8.30, you could hardly find a table. Tourists, visitors, travelers, and half the people of Mariposa crowded at the little tables. Eh, crockery, rattling, glasses tinkling on trays, corks popping, and the waiters in their white coats flying to and fro, Alphonse whirling the cutlets and pancakes into the air, and 
Through it all, Mr. Smith, in a white flannel suit and a broad crimson sash about his waist, crowded and gay from morning to night, and even, eh, noisy in its hilarity. Uh, noisy, uh, yes, but if you wanted deep, quiet, and cool, if you wanted a step from the glare of Canadian August to the deep shadow of an enchanted glade, uh, walk down below into the rat's cooler. There you had it. Dark old beams. Who could believe they were put there a month ago? Great casks set on end with legends such as Amontillado, Fino, Dunn, and Gilt, and Black Ground. Tall steins filled with German beer, soft as moss. And a German waiter, noiseless as moving foam. He who entered the rat's cooler at three of the summer afternoon was buried there for a day. Mr. Glagatha, Gingham, spent anything from four to seven hours there every day. In his mind, the place had all the quiet charm and interment with none of its sorrows. But at night, when Mr. Smith and Billy, the desk clerk, opened up the cash register and figured out the combined losses of the calf and the rat's cooler, Mr. Smith would say, eh, uh, Billy, uh, just wait till I get the license renewed. And I'll close up this damn calf so tight they'll never know what hit her. What did that uh, lamb cost? Fifty cents a pound, was it? Uh, I figure, Billy, that every one of them hogs eats about a dollar's worth of grub for every 25 cents they pay. As for Alf, uh, by gosh, I'm through with him. Uh, but that, of course, was only a confidential matter, matter as between Mr. Smith and Billy. I don't know at uh, what precise period... It was the idea of the petition to the license commissioners, but uh, first got the town. No one seems to know uh, just who suggested it, but certain it was that public opinion began to swing strongly toward the support of Mr. Smith. I think it was perhaps on the day after the Big Fish dinner that Alphonse cooked for the Mariposa Canoe Club at yeah, 20 cents a head, that the feeling began to find open expression. People said eh, it was a shame that a man like Josh Smith would be run out of Mariposa by three license commissioners who were the license commissioners anyways. Eh, why look at the license system that they had in Sweden. Uh, yes. And in Finland and in South America. Or, for that matter, uh, look at the French and Italians who drink all day and all night. Aren't they all right? Uh, aren't they musical people? Eh, take Napoleon and eh, Victor Hugo. Yeah, drunk half the time and yet look what they did. I quote these arguments not for their own sake, but merely to indicate the changing temper of the public opinion of Mariposa. Men would sit in the calf at lunch, eh, perhaps at four and a half, and talk about the license question in general, and then go down into the rat's cooler and talk about it eh, for two hours more. It was amazing by the way the light broke in. In the case of particular individuals, often the most unlikely, and quelled their opposition. Take... Eh, for example, the editor of the news packet. I suppose there wasn't a greater temperance advocate in town, yet Alphonse queered him with an omelet, a la license in one meal. Or take Pepperley himself, the judge of the Mariposa court. He was put to the bad with a game pie. Pate, mm, Normox finds herbs. The real thing as good as a trip to Paris itself. After eating it, eh, Pepperley had common sense to realize it was sheer madness to destroy a hotel that could cook a thing like that. In the same way, the secretary of the school board was silenced with a stuffed duck a la Asawippi. Three members of the town council were converted with a dindron farsi a la Josh Smith. 
And then, finally, Mr. Diston persuaded Dean Drone to come, and as soon as Mr. Smith and Alphonse saw him, they landed him with a fried flounder that even the apostles would have appreciated. After that, everyone knew that the license question was practically settled. The petition was all over the town. It was printed in duplicate at the news packet, and you could see it lying in on the counter every shop in Mariposa. Some of the people signed it eh, 20 or 30 times. It was the right kind of document, too. It began, whereas in the bounty of the providence the earth putteth forth her luscious fruits and her vineyards for the delight and enjoyment of mankind. It made you thirsty just to read it. Any man who read that petition was wild to get to the rat's cooler. When it was all signed up, eh, they had nearly 3,000 names. Then Nivens, the lawyer, and Mr. Gingham, as a provincial official, took it down to the country town, and by three o'clock that afternoon, the news had gone out from the long-distance telephone office that Smith's license was renewed for three years. Ah, rejoicings. Well, I should think so. Everyone was down wanting to shake hands with Mr. Smith. They, they told him that he had done more to boo Mariposa than any ten men in town. Some of them said he ought to run for town council, and others wanted to make him the conservative candidate for the next Dominion election. The calf... It was a mere babble of voices, and even the rat's cooler was almost floated away from its moorings. And in the middle of it all, Mr. Smith found time to say to Billy, the desk clerk, yeah, take the cash registers out of the calf and the rat's coolers and start counting up the books. And Billy said, I'll write the letters for the palms and the tables and the stuff to go back. Mr. Smith said, get it written right away. So all evening, the laughter and the chatter and the congratulations went on. And it wasn't until long after midnight that Mr. Smith was able to join Billy in the private room behind the rotundra. Even when he did, there was a quiet and a dignity about his manner that had never been there before. I think it must have been the whole new halo of the conservative candidacy that already radiated from his brow. It was, I imagine, at this very moment that Mr. Smith first realized that the hotel business formed the natural and proper threshold of the national legislature. Here is the account of the cash register, said Billy. Eh, let me see it, said Mr. Smith, and he studied the figures without a word. And here's the letters about the bombs, and here's Alphonse up to yesterday. And then an amazing thing happened. Billy, said Mr. Smith, tear him up. I ain't going to do it. It ain't right, and I won't do it. Eh, they got the license for me to keep the calf, and I'm going to keep the calf. I don't need to close her. The bar's good for anything from 40 to 100 to a day now. With the rat's cooler going good, and that calf will stay right there. And stay it did. There it stands, mind you, to this day. You've only to step around the corner of Smith's Hotel on the, on the side of the street with the sign that reads, Ladies and Gents Cafe, just as large and imposing as ever. Mr. Smith said that he'd keep the calf, and when he said a thing, he meant it. Of course, there were changes, and small changes. I don't say, mind you, that the filet de beef that you get there now is perhaps quite up to the level of the filet de bouffes, aux, champons of the days of glory. No doubt the lamb chops in Smith's calf they're often as much the same. Nowadays, is the lamb chops of the Mariposa House or the Continental. Of course, things like omelette or truffles practically died out when Alphonse went. 
and naturally the leaving of Alphonse was inevitable. No one knew just when he went or why, but one morning he was gone. Mr. Smith said that Alf had, uh, had to go back to his folks in the old country. So, too, when Alf left, the use of the French language as such fell off tremendously in the calf. Even now, they use it to some extent. You can still get filet de beef and uh, saison au juice. Uh, but Billy, the desk clerk, has considerable trouble with the spelling. The rat's cooler, of course, closed down. Or rather, Mr. Smith closed it for repairs. There is every likelihood that it will hardly open for three years. But the calf is there. Yeah, they don't use the grills, because there's no need to with the hotel kitchen so handy. The, quote, girl room, I may say, was never opened. Ah, Mr. Smith promised it. It's true for the winter, and still talks of it. But somehow there's been sort of a feeling against it. Everyone in town admits that the, every big hotel in the city has a girl room, and that it must be all right. Still, there's a certain, well, you know, sensitive opinion is in the uh, place like Mariposa. I suppose I'll change my watchword from the intro, uh, from freedom to laborious. Because that was laborious. It was long. And, uh, but good. It's well written, just not written for someone to read out loud, which makes me kind of regret that I've married myself to this book. Uh, but we're going to do it. We're going to get through it. There's only uh, 10 chapters. So. That was uh, Stephen Leacock, uh, Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town. Uh, we learned that corruption doesn't have to be bad. If you take a corrupt person and threaten them with losing everything, they'll start to do uh, philanthropy, which I think says a lot about corporations in America, around the world as well. Uh, take Jeff Bezos uh, from Amazon. He suddenly realizes it looks really bad that he never paid any taxes for a full year. At all. So he starts giving away a fraction of his money uh, to different uh, causes, and he thinks that that makes everything okay. And apparently it does. If you live in a small town, you become the hero, as long as you get a French chef. Uh, so, how can you apply this to your life? Don't be afraid to do bad things, as long as you're also prepared to uh, do a bare minimum of kindness to make up for it. So, with that, we will uh, continue reading this story next week. Thanks for listening.